The Accelerator Podcast is here. I'm your host on tap, Monty King, inviting you to leave ordinary in the dust. Every next level of our lives demands a better version of ourselves. Our guests will inspire you to close the gap. What doesn't happen by design happens by default, so the content on tap is created for listeners to learn and grow. Visit us online at whatsontap.tv or find us on your favorite podcast platform. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, tap five stars and drop us a review. Hit the notification bell to never miss an episode and share your favorites to help others outrun the status quo. Let's get started. Uh, Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Accelerator Podcast. Um, Today is going to be awesome. Uh, we're, We're going to be discussing being trauma-informed when it comes to witnesses uh, involved in severe or even fatal accidents uh, and the negative impact that it can have on their deposition. Uh, And, you know, when your mental health and wellness uh, of the the driver specifically, it's not considered, then it can absolutely have a negative impact on the um, outcome uh, of of the case. And today I've got Dr. Steve Wood from Courtroom Sciences. Uh, and uh, he's, he's our special guest on TAP today, and he's going to walk us through some witness training and being trauma-informed, what that means, uh, what that's like, and the impact that it could have, both positive and negative, um, doing it the wrong and the right way. Uh, so, Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks, Monty, for having me. appreciate being here. Absolutely. I, I'm excited, and, and I just want to dive right in. And so uh, I'd like to start with just saying, you know, what are the common signs of trauma that you look for when you're getting ready to prepare or your witness preparation? Um, what is it that rings or, or keys you in to say, okay, we, we've got to work on this? I think obviously the first thing is the, the case facts, right? If we look and see what, what kind of the, what's involved, what type of injuries are involved, what's the role that that witness has in those events, you know, and then obviously talk to them and find out kind of how they're handling it. Because I think too often attorneys want to dive right into the witness training and and start, you know, talking to them about answering questions and how to answer questions and not spending a lot of time on the front end asking them, how are you feeling? Uh, How does it, what are your thoughts about being involved in this litigation? You know, what, what are your thoughts about the fact that you're being essentially blamed for causing this severe injury for someone? And, you know, just, talking to them and getting a sense for where they're at. And a lot of times you can get a sense for, you know, are they, are they angry about it? Are they angry about being sued? Um, are they sad about it? Are they depressed about it? You know, is it something that is causing them to, you know, severely impact their life, whether it means they start drinking or abusing drugs or, you know, having marital problems or any of that type of stuff to try to get a sense for, you know, what each person is, is going through. And I think that's the first thing that we need to address. So when I do it, I try to identify, you know, like I said, their role, and then at the same time, ask them how they're dealing with the, the aspects of the case. So how does um, understanding pre-accident, maybe trauma from, from up to that point, and then post-accident trauma, do you look at those as two separate things or is it just overall the, the mental, an emotional state 
of the individual, which I'm sure varies case by case, right? So it's usually, yeah, it's it's usually post accident, at least as far as I mean, obviously the pre accident is going to give you this little bit of insight and type of the, the person they are. But obviously, most of the information we always have is going to be post accident. So it's a matter of kind of looking at how that person is, is dealing with it. But obviously, the, the, the pre accident kind of personality characteristics, the type of person they are, are they hyper vigilant? Are they more of the, you know, person who is, is a little bit less hyper vigilant? Or they're, they're more of who cares, right? They're, they're, they're just less carry. They're less they're less uh, uptight or anxious, you know, that th they're going to handle something a little bit differently post-accident than the person who's hypervigilant pre-accident. And then obviously the, the accident's going to affect them a lot worse afterwards. How does um, the timing impact the, the, the driver or, or the witness? Meaning obviously once, you know, cases go, they go to litigation, it's typically, I mean, it could be years before they actually, um, are deposed, right? So that time lapse between the occurrence and then deposition, uh, what kind of impact can that have? You know, you'd think <clears throat> they always tell that is right. Time heals all wounds. But with, with some of these is the longer it, it's going on, the more they start to ruminate and then there's really no closure. And we've had it before where, you know, whether it's been a physician or a truck driver, and then it's been two years since the incident. And then we get involved, you know, when we come in, they're, they're all almost upset and they're like, why is this case still going on? Like, why haven't you guys settled this? Why am I getting deposed now two years later? Can't we get on and move on with our lives? So, it, you know, it's almost like they continue to get traumatized every time they're essentially getting heard, they're hearing from the attorney and, but then, you know, getting ready and prepared for their deposition and then getting ready and prepared for if this were to go to trial. So it's like they're keen, keen, getting re-traumatized every single time because now they have to relive it. So you'd think after a while, okay, it's been two years since the incident. They're, they're, they're a lot better, but at the same time, these different, you know, kind of hot button points for them are just continuing to keep it rolling, continuing to keep it in the back of their mind, continuing it for them to be impacted. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, speaking of reliving it, you know, as you know, from a transportation industry perspective, it, it's almost just the default or the norm to have at least outward facing cameras, video cameras recording uh, for the motor carriers, um, what kind of impact could having, you know, the, the witness having to relive the video, uh, have, have on the deposition? Yeah. I mean, that, that is a very, a very careful topic as far as like, obviously you're, you're, you want your witnesses to see it. Your witnesses are going to see it and ha have it presented to them in their deposition. Uh, but you gotta be careful as far as how it gets introduced. Like you can't just all of a sudden sit down with, with the driver who, you know, was involved in an incident where they killed a family of three and just say, here, let's sit down and, and look at when you hit them and look, let's look at all the carnage and all that. Like you just can't do that. Right. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things with that, all a lot of that video is it has to be very stepwise as far as introducing them to it. Say, okay, you know, here, here's the setup. And then maybe you move a second ahead, then maybe move another second ahead. Or sometimes you can take screenshots of it and then present it. But the point being is you kind of want to slowly introduce that type of information to your witness rather than just kind of throwing it at them all at once. Because like I said, now there's this video is that they've probably been playing it back in their minds. They've been probably reliving it. And obviously our minds trick us and the way we see things when we're re reliving them, it's a little bit different than what the video shows. Um, mm -hmm. 
But the problem being is the video obviously is one of those further things that let's say, for example, they thought it went a certain way and they thought they had less culpability or they thought they, they thought that things happened actually in a more vanilla type of way. Then you show them the video, then they realize it's actually worse than what they believe. Um, so yeah, with his videos and stuff, it's helpful to have all that type of stuff, but it can also be harmful if done improperly and if addressed improperly with your witnesses. So, so mistakes could be made even by having the video if you don't have a, a good process and reintroducing uh, that, that incident, I guess, back to the witness. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I've seen it before where witnesses, like you said, have seen it for the first time and, and get visibly very distraught and upset and stuff. And now all of a sudden you have a bigger issue because now you got to handle that first before you can move on, you know? And like I said, a lot of times everybody wants to just say, Hey, yep, that's, it is what it is. Let's, let's move on to the, to the, the preparation for your deposition. But the truth of the matter is you got to address the front end, uh, a portion. So I'm curious because, you know, now more and more companies are also um, at least considering if they don't already have inward facing cameras, that's looking at the driver. Um, could that make it even worse uh, for the driver to see, like you just said, they in their mind, they've got it played out one way, but then when they actually see themselves and they see the incident, could that, you know, amplify uh, the trauma in, in essence? I mean, I guess I would say from, from at least the transportation perspective, obviously you're going to, that the inward facing and the outward facing are helpful as far as from a liability perspective. Um, but as far as, and increasing the trauma. I mean, I would say there's a potential for it, right? But I mean, I wouldn't say not to do it because then you're gonna say, we don't wanna put these outward facing cameras or inward facing cameras that help with our liability because we're afraid our, our drivers are gonna be re-traumatized. I mean, obviously you wanna be able to have that to, to protect yourself. Um, I, but I think the biggest point is just being very cognizant of the fact that, you know, the, the drivers can be severely impacted by this and that video could help to re-traumatize them. I think that's the biggest key thing is just understanding what the impact is of having it. So how do you um, come to the conclusion like if, if someone is so traumatized that it, it's hard to help them heal or you don't have enough time for them to heal or maybe they will never heal? Like what, what does that look like whenever you're trying to determine what level of traumatic experience or effect um, they, they've experienced. Well, I mean, I, I, in that situation, a lot of times I want these, because obviously, you know, I, I have a PhD, but I'm not a clinical licensed clinical psychologist. Um, so a lot of times I want those drivers to get help, you know, outside and get counseling and get therapy and stuff. Um, and, and rather than spend all the time with kind of the training, you dig need to be addressing a lot of the other, the other factors. Um, because like I said, if they don't get that addressed, then it's almost impossible to train them to get into a deposition because, you know, as much as you say that they're going to be okay, as much as you want to address how many times they see the accident and stuff, if they haven't really kind of gone to actual, any sort of like clinical psychology, clinical counseling, where they can talk to somebody and help get over it. When, it, when, the, when the emotion comes out, it's going to come out in the deposition as well, and they're going to end up having, having a bad response. Um, so those are the things that, that I look at that sometimes it's just where, like you said, if this person is so hyper 
uh, emotional to the point that they just can't focus on what the training is. They can't focus on whether or not, you know, getting ready for the deposition. I think that's when I say, you know, hey, we need to get a professional involved in here that needs to take care of this. And before we take, we can't move forward if we don't take care of that. You know, and, and I've seen before where attorneys will be able to get, you know, depositions pushed because they'll basically say, I'm, I can't produce my witness because my witness is in no position to be able to be produced. And like I said, and you can use that time to, to get those other psychological things addressed. So there are resources out there for motor carriers uh, regarding employee um, assistance programs or EAPs as, as they're called for mental health and, and wellness um, where you can have, um, at, you know, for offer to all the employees for free, you can't make them do it, uh, but you can provide a, someone to talk to a counselor or therapist, however you want um, to, to categorize them. In your opinion, do you think that having one of those programs can also help the outcome of a situation like this um, if they ever, you know, come about, or let's just assume it does a company that has this program in place, they can pick up the phone and call to someone and not worry about what they may say, having a negative impact with HR because it's confidential, of course, unless it gets to the point to where they're going to harm themselves or someone else. But do you think those types of programs being proactive and already having those helps with moving the, um, closure or the outcome of the case, uh, and getting a accelerated development yeah i think those i think those programs are, are a really good idea you know as obviously I, I'm, I'm big on mental health and making sure that people are taking care of themselves you know i think having those those programs in place are really kind of a message to the employees that the the employer cares about them right and has these things in place to say okay if you need these we have these types of things here we're here for you because we realize in your situation especially like i said in the trucking industry you know, a lot of things happen in these, a lot of incidents occur with, with drivers that they need someone to talk to. And this for be able to companies to say, we have these in place, we have these resources in place because we're looking out for your best interest. We wanna make sure that you are mentally healthy. So I think mm -hmm. there's definitely a value to having those. With that said, now you have a problem though of where people tend to look at, and we're getting better in society now where a lot of times people think that somehow if you're going to get mental health help that somehow it makes you weak somehow it's one of those kind of stigmas that nobody wants to talk about you know and and add into uh, industries like the trucking industry where it's a lot more i'd say alpha male type things where a lot of people would say that's i'm not going to do that that's that's for someone else not me and i think that's the other problem in the barrier you have to get over as well is you can have these things in place but if you have a culture or, or you have a thought process where you think that this is something that it's not for you, then you're going to be less apt to use it. So the other thing is, is not only having that, having these companies be able to show that, you know, we care about our employees, but the other thing is, is creating a culture where the stigma of going to that and utilizing that in times of need is, is reduced as well. Well, and it also takes me back to something you said earlier that, that, that kind of hit me is, is you can kind of say to anybody and we do it every, every one of us, we, we do this every day to everybody. Say, hey, how are you doing? I'm fine. Okay, cool. You know, how are you? I, I'm doing well. But it's probably one, maybe two questions away from opening up the floodgates of what's really going on, right? Yeah. So, and, I, 
And I think that's a good point because that's that's one of the things, you know, like you said, when I talk about talking with, with witnesses ahead of time in, in the prep sessions, you know, as you find out how they are. And like you said, they might say they're fine. But then you start asking, like you said, how do you feel about being in this litigation? How are you sleeping? How are you eating? Are you exercising? And as you said, as you start to peel back the onion with those kind of simple questions before you know it, you know, I've had witnesses start crying right there. You know, they're, they're, they say they're fine. And I mean, this I can vividly remember one truck driver who was like, you know, full sleeve tattoos, chain wallet, earrings in both ears, shaved head, beard. And it was that tough guy kind of I'm fine. And then after about five, six, seven questions and, and asking a little bit more. Before you know it, he's starting to choke up. He's starting to tear up. So a lot of times, these, you know, a lot of times the people are kind of holding things back and, and not really putting them out. So to your point about asking how you're doing, it's kind of surface level too. You know, it, it's it's when people ask that. And a lot of times it's because people don't want to be burdened. Like, could you imagine, Monty, if we got on here and, and, you know, you said, Steve, how are you this morning? And I said, I'm terrible. I'm in San Diego right now. I, I took a red eye last night. I got to turn around and work all day today. And you're going to be going... Gee, man. Uh, okay. I shouldn't have asked that. I shouldn't have opened that door. Right. Um, but I think there's times where in that situation, you know, in, in normal everyday conversations is fine. But like I said, in a witness prep type session, you want to get past and, and taking it as I'm fine is never just I'm fine. Well, in, in the, the prosecution probably is going to feed off those surface level items. Uh, to get to the underlying and try to expose that. Would you agree? Yeah. And like I said, the worst thing you ever want is for your witness essentially to have their emotional meltdown or their emotional, uh, you know, mistakes to happen in the deposition. You want to get those out in, in, in the training sessions. You know, I have videos when I do speeches and stuff of showing safety directors and other individuals essentially having an emotional meltdown right in the middle of the deposition and then right about 10 minutes later, they say something really, really bad for the case. But those are all the things you could have addressed on the front end and get all those out, knowing that these are the areas that are going to be talked about and touched upon in your deposition so that your witness is ready for them so that they do have the crying session. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had crying sessions with witnesses and I just let them go, you know, and it's like an hour in and we haven't even talked anything about the case. But then they get all the stuff out because they have concerns about whether or not the company is going to stand behind them whether or not they're going to lose their jobs, um, whether or not they're going to be criminally punished for what's going to happen. I mean, they have all these kind of fears and some, a lot of them are irrational fears. Um, but like I said, addressing those up front to be able to, to make sure that they don't happen in the deposition, because to your point, yeah, if they smell blood in the water, right, they're going after it and they're going to pick and pick and pick and get your, your witness to fall apart. So uh, clarify something for me, because I, I've, I've, heard of this and I, I just want to make sure that I understand correctly, but if an incident is, you know, let's just assume there's a fatality, the motor carrier, you know, obviously they, um, they get sued and brought in the case, but doesn't the driver also get uh, something brought against him as well, him or her, uh, their, their name specifically, like you just kind of mentioned from a criminal perspective. Yeah. I mean, I guess it, it depends. It depends on, on, the case facts about whether or not they're going to be, you know, blamed criminally. But I've, I've seen as well where they're blamed civilly as well, you know, where it's, it's the driver, the company and the driver are both named in the lawsuit. And obviously that becomes a little bit different because now all of a sudden the, the, the driver's worried about what does this mean for me personally? And I've seen it before where 
plaintiff's counsel will have both of them in. They'll keep the driver in for a really long time. And then right about on the eve of trial, they'll drop the driver out and keep in the trucking company. But it's enough pressure on the, the driver to cause this a lot of stress for the driver about the unknowns, mm -hmm. about what's going to happen, because now they've been named, you know, personally. Are, is that, does that mean they're going to lose their house? Are they going to come after them? Are they going to start, you know, taking their vehicles and, and all that type of stuff? So then, like, it just adds another level of anxiety for them to, to be worried about. And then, obviously, like you say, if you have criminal charges, that's a whole nother that's a whole other animal because now you have to you have to deal with not only the civil aspects but you have to deal with the criminal aspects and making sure, you know, when you're being deposed, you're not saying anything that could hurt the criminal case. But obviously, I've I've worked with that, and there's always usually involvement right from the civil attorney and the criminal attorney, and there's some coordination between the two of them about whether or not they take the fifth and whether or not they answer certain questions and all that. So, is there a strategy that motor carriers can use? either through the onboarding process or, or recurring training to maybe be proactive and saying, you know, or, or talking about, look, this, this is your potential exposure. We hired you as a professional driver. So of course we expect you to be professional, which means this, but this is also your exposure where you could be named individually as well as the company. Uh, is, is there anything that a motor carrier can do to help get ahead of that because I, I got to imagine for drivers who are unaware that they can be individually named, that probably really shakes them up to what you said earlier about the uh, prosecution will drag it all the way out to the end and then drop it, but make it so stressful to try to get them to probably, you know, obviously the reptilian theory and, and all that negligent hiring, et cetera. But speak to that if you don't mind, like what can, a motor carrier do proactively to try to, you know, head that off at the past. You know, I think, I don't know if I'd address per, I mean, whether I would necessarily kind of go after and say, Hey, they, they, they could name you personally and be worried about that. But I think there's, there's definitely a value in like you say, in, in making sure in your training sessions that they're aware kind of of the procedure of the process of what were to happen in an instance. Now I wouldn't like dwell on it, to, to try to scare people, but I think it helps them to understand kind of what could occur and what occurs kind of the process so that, you know, they have a general idea when they get into it. Now, I wouldn't, like I said, get too much into the weeds as far as all the, the intricacies of a deposition and a lawsuit and all that type of stuff. But I think to your point, you know, at least mentioning it as far as kind of how serious they need to take their training and how serious they need to understand what they're doing when they're behind behind the wheel. Um, but I think it goes back to as well about the training because I mean, what what is what does plaintiff's bar love to go after, right? Negligent training, negligent hiring, uh, negligent retention, all these types of things that trucking companies need to make sure that they're addressing and focusing on because that's the weakness, that's the area they're going to immediately in in any sort of litigation where there's a, a, a an accident involving a truck. That's that's the first spot they go to look. And so if you can bulletproof that and and, and increase that so that it looks a lot more solid it makes it a lot more difficult when it comes time for litigation to try to pick holes in that. So, so do, do you or courtroom sciences, do you offer uh, witness training like a la carte, for example, if there's a motor carrier who's not even involved in anything, but the owner just wants to be proactive and making sure his employees are as prepared as possible. Um, do you offer trainings like that? Yeah, we do. You know, what's what's funny is we, we, we didn't, but that's been something that obviously that's been 
a part of our idea now and our, our the thing that we preach a lot is proactivity and, and not waiting until the lawsuit is filed and not kind of essentially constantly playing on your heels. So, yeah, there's times that we go in where, you know, I've done it where I, I'll prep several people who are going to be corporate reps and prep them on the deposition and go through our whole training session so that if something were to happen and then we get brought in a little bit later, that's a refresher course rather than having to do it all at once. Or like you said, I've done it before with employees where, you know, you get 10 employees into a room and you go through the training session. So, yeah, there's absolutely times that that happens where they're not involved in any litigation whatsoever. And they just want to have make sure that all the people that are involved are prepared. Um, and I can tell you that those motor carriers are, are very, very smart uh, as far as wanting to do that, because they obviously see the dangers of what could have occur. And, you know, they want to get out in front of it. And obviously that is much better of a mentality to be having than, oh, you know, we'll just kind of play it by ear and, and maybe we'll do something, maybe we won't. And then obviously, you know, here comes your nuclear verdict uh, afterwards. Well, and my thought, too, is, you know, in our industry, you know, there, there's a saying of if it's not it's not if it's when something happens, but we or our driver could be doing everything right. And someone else end up dying, unfortunately, because of their negligence, right? So it's it's not just um, us saying that you know we didn't do anything wrong, and, and assuming that because we're uh, a quality motor carrier that we're never going to have an issue. Uh, so uh, because there's a, there's that you know third party that we have no control over, right? So um, yeah, like you said, we, the you could done everything right, and then and, and someone ends up dying and stuff and like you said you could think you did everything right and you could actually have done everything right problem is that doesn't stop anybody from falling in a lawsuit and in that lawsuit they're going to look for things to show that you did something wrong you know and like you said to your point about dealing with with drivers and dealing with others where they are extremely adamant about we didn't do anything wrong why are we still in this lawsuit this is ridiculous it's clear we didn't do anything wrong and I always talk about, like, it doesn't matter what you think. It only matters, like, that opposing counsel thinks that there's a, there's a lawsuit out there. So they're going to keep pressing forward it. So the best thing we can do is have you prepared so that when you go in your deposition, you make sure that you do what you need to do in order to be an effective witness so that, yeah, so that if this were to ever go to trial or, you know, if you go to settle this thing, that you could say, yeah, obviously it's clear we didn't do anything wrong versus being defensive versus being hyper-emotional you know, doing any types of things that's going to take something where you factually did nothing wrong and all of a sudden now give plaintiff a strong case when there was no case to begin with. So when is it too late to start witness training? When is it too late? I'd, I would say, I, I mean, it's, I guess it's never too late. Um, but I would say, though, if your depositions have already gone and you're getting ready to go to trial, it's probably too late. You know, because the, the, the deposition, how you do in the deposition, how your witnesses do in the deposition can set the tone for settlement negotiations. It can set the tone for how you're going to work up your case and how much the plaintiff wants to continue pressing to go to trial. You know, so that lays the foundation of, of how the case progresses. So I would say, like I said, if, if you gotten to the point where your depositions have gone, you know, it's probably too late. But with that said, you know, depending on how bad the depositions were, we've worked with witnesses, you know, pre-trial as well to try to get them to a point where, um, you know, they can present well to the jury as well. So I would say it's never, never too late, but. Well, 
proactive is better, right? That's oh, absolutely. Better. Yeah, I mean, like I said, ideally, to your point, ideally it would be before you even get before you even get sued. But then after that, it would be, like I said, getting involved and in doing the things that you need to do with you know crisis communication language. I mean, that's something we haven't even talked about. That's probably for a whole another podcast about your language and messaging in the trucking industry about being prepared when bad things happen. As you said, it's not if, it's when. Well, the question becomes, what do you, what does your communications look like? What are your, what does your website look like? What does your internal documents look like? Do you have holding statements? Who's your corporate rep? Who's the person that's going to be talking to the media? I mean, having all of those things in place before it even happens. So when something does happen, now you're ready because now you have that communication in spots. You know who your corporate reps are. And when the depots come, those people are at least aware of what the, 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 the issues are and what they're supposed to do. And then they're ready to go and get to post. How dangerous is uh, social media for the companies and the drivers in situations like this? Extremely dangerous. Uh, I, I, I try to stay off social media, um, you know, as, as much as I can, cause it, it's just bad in general. Um, but with that said, yeah, social media is, is really, really bad for companies in you know, as far as, you know, what your employees are tweeting, what your employees are saying, what you have on your, you know, front facing community language, you know, like I said, tip for all of the uh, trucking industries out there, stop saying safety is your top priority on your websites. Stop putting that on your websites um, and stop saying that in your, in your social media stuff. But yes, it can be very, very um, harmful because like I said, it doesn't take much to snip something, screenshot it and then keep it and then use it later on in litigation and nothing worse than having your, your corporate rep being deposed and then having the, the screenshot from the, the website, right? Stuck in front of their face and say, Hey, see, tell me what that, tell me what that's all about. And now all of a sudden they're, they're backpedaling. Hard, hard to dispute it. If, if you, if you're putting it out there like that. Right? Yeah, exactly. This, and like I said, it goes back, not enough, not enough of a concern as far as when those things are getting written up and when those things are getting put together about what would happen in potential litigation if this were to get shown. So I'm going to shift gears uh, a little bit and, and ask you about the um, uh, Alec Murdoch case that's going on right now. Uh, I, I don't know if, if you've been keeping up with it regularly or I know we had a conversation and you, you knew a little bit about it, but um, a few days ago, uh, I, I was watching the replay of one of the um, forensics guys who recreated like from a noise perspective on hearing the shotgun from different locations. And, you know, I, I know minimal about witness training, but I felt like he really frustrated uh, the um, prosecution with his responses uh, because he was very calm and his responses when they tried to quarter him were, well, it depends. And there are other factors that are involved. And yes, this may be important, but all of this is important uh, collectively. Can you, do you have a, an opinion on that or can you speak to that and how that might also translate in, in a, you know, fatality case uh, for a motor carrier? Are there correlations? <laughs> yeah, it's, so I'm going to have to go back now apparently and, and and watch that. That was one of the days that I missed. Although I did watch the Netflix documentary that's out. There's actually a Netflix documentary. That's a three-part uh, documentary that talks about essentially everything from the boating accident leading all the way up to, to the current murder trial. Um, so oh, that's wow. interesting. Uh, but to your point, though, yeah, 
you know, as far as the, it depends and all these factors are important and all of these things. Yeah. That frustrates, uh, frustrates opposing counsel because, you know, as I always talked about witnesses is they want the world to exist in black and white, but really it's, it's shades of gray. Most things in life are, are mm -hmm. shades of gray, you know, and that's what he was trying to say. And it frustrates them because they want the yes or no response. But like I said, he beautifully then obviously, like I said, I'll, I'll get back and, and watch it. But if he was saying it depends and there's a lot of factors that need to go into it, that that's the way to handle it. Because like I said, that's the more truthful, honest, accurate answer. The problem is opposing counsel doesn't like it. They make you feel like you're trying to be evasive. They make you feel like you're trying to hide the ball. They make you feel like you're doing something wrong. But the truth of the matter is, as I said, that's the accurate, intellectually honest answer. And if they really wanted to, they could follow up with, well, you keep saying it depends or you keep saying there's a lot of factors that need to take into consideration. What are those factors, right? Do they ever do that? No, they usually just press and press and press to try to get you to say yes to something because they want you to say yes to it versus asking the more open-ended, you know, and that's where opposing counsel comes in or excuse me, your counsel comes in and says, Hey, you know, you kept saying it depends and each context is different and all that type of stuff. Do you want to explain more? And that's when you let your witness explain more, provide additional context. And then it helps them because they've essentially become the teacher and he had an opportunity, you know, they give them an opportunity to, to kind of show their credibility to the jurors uh, about how that, why, what factors are going into it and what factors they're using to make their decision. And that kind of contrasts to opposing the other counsel who's basically just trying to press you to say yes or no, to say, gee, he knew there was other factors. He just never actually uh, asked the follow-up question. Yeah, so, I, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that that's the way we do. Like saying in depositions, it's it's the same way too to try to address those those type of reptile theory questions and these black and white notions of always and never. There's very few things that are always and never, but opposing counsel is pressing always to get you to to do that, and and they don't like it when you say some variation of it depends you know if it's generally yes not necessarily no all of that they don't like it when you say that but that's the correct answer yeah i, I literally laughed out loud a few times thinking like you know that the the witness had clearly had a lot of experience in that sitting in that chair uh and in the frustration on on the the counsel questioning him was just like it was just humorous to me. So uh, definitely check that out and let me know what you think. Yeah. There was another witness in that case too, that was very short and concise in his responses. I think it was one of the, one of the prior employees of Alec Murdoch's who was the one that was responsible for like depositing the checks. Uh, and, and he was short and concise with his responses, you know, and I was watching, uh, I think it was on YouTube TV or on YouTube where they had the, the running chat on the side and, and some, most people liked him. Um, some people didn't like him, thought he was snarky and stuff, but I thought he did a good job because, you know, it's the quintessential ask, ask, answer only the question that's being asked. And that's what he was doing, short and concise um, and, and wasn't getting flustered, wasn't getting frustrated as much as they were trying to get him to do stuff. He just kept stall, calm, cool and collected. Um, I thought he was another good witness as well. Man, so you just hit on something really awesome, I think. How many times in your experience do drivers specifically since we're talking about you know trucking and, and if they were involved in fatality how many times do they answer questions that aren't even asked that get them in trouble all the time <laughs> more i mean all the time you know and, and that's that's going back to like you said addressing emotional issues um the cognitive stuff so we talk about cognitive errors being kind of these 
normal everyday conversation errors where, you know, we interrupt each other, we talk over each other, you know, we finish each other's sentences because we're constantly like someone's halfway through the question and we're starting to formulate a response before they're even done. So what ends up happening is we miss part of the question before you know it, we're, we're answering something else. Um, so <clears throat> that's what I see a lot with witnesses. It's very, very common. Um, but the other thing is, like you said, the, the emotional aspects of it is that they're feeling defensive. They're feeling like they need to defend their conduct. So they get asked a very simple question. And before you know it, they launch into this diatribe trying to explain away everything to rationalize all these different factors. You know, and like you said, they're not addressing anything that was actually in the question. It's because they just wanted to get their side of the story across because they're so desperate to try to defend themselves. And the thought being, if I just give you this piece of information, if I just told you this, if I just explained my side of the story better, this whole, you know, this whole, this case will just go away. Well, we know that's never going to happen. Is that also why in certain cases, um, maybe even like for a company owner, maybe even a driver that uh, the decisions made not to put them on the stand? Yeah. I mean, sometimes witnesses, yeah, you're just better off to to, to not call them. Um, But with that said, you know, you, you, with the proper training, I can say that I haven't had too many witnesses that essentially were just like, this person is so bad that you cannot let them get anywhere remotely close to the stand. You know, and like I said, a lot of times if that were to happen, it's usually the hyper emotional ones. You know, I I had, I had one where it was a bus driver who made a left turn um, in front of a vehicle and these two cars were racing going about 85 and a 45 Um, sun's in her face. She goes to turn and all of a sudden they come up on him. Uh, you know, and one of the cars gets engulfed in flames. One of the one of the passengers of the vehicle obviously gets severely burned on her body. And this bus driver uh, just continually would have nightmares and flashbacks and she could almost smell like burning flesh um, and those types of things. She was such a wreck that we, we you couldn't even do anything with her. You know what I mean? She needed to get professional help and, you know, and. and and deal with that first. She was so bad that you could, like you said, you were like, we cannot depose her. I don't care what we have to do. We, we cannot get her deposed because she is not ready and you're going to traumatize her. And this is less about the case and more about you're going to traumatize her as a human being. Mm. Wow. Awesome. Well, well Steve, I, I think that we could probably talk forever with, with not just this, but you've got several different just pieces of your entire process overall when it comes to um, litigation and, and how you guys prepare for it. So I definitely would love to have you back for another show and maybe we could talk about um, some of the other items you mentioned. Um, but I would like for you to let everyone know how they can reach out to you and where they can find you. Uh, and then I've got a few more questions before we wrap up for the day, but um, let's go ahead and make sure that everyone can get in touch with you and they know when and how and where to call you when they need you. Yeah, sure. You can email me at swood, S-W-O-O-D, at courtroomsciences.com. Um, you can, you know, get a hold of me through the, the website as well, courtroomsciences.com. We have blogs and, and we have our own podcast up there as well uh, that, that you can listen to, the Litigation Psychology Podcast. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. You know, I, I don't is that probably not as active as, as some other people on LinkedIn, but uh, I'm up on LinkedIn as well. Feel free to reach out to me on, on LinkedIn and I'm, I'm happy to, to connect and, and have conversations with people. Awesome. And I'll shout out the litigation psychology podcast. I, I 
I think it's awesome. So I love the rants. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you've got one for today, like, hey, I'm doing a 3 a.m. podcast. Yeah, uh, certainly let me know. So yeah. I leave the uh, I leave the rants to Bill. That's kind of <laughs> Bill's thing. So uh, he's let me rant a couple times, but I kind of just tell him, you know what? I'm gonna let that I'm gonna let that be your thing. <laughs> awesome. All right. So now I've got um, what we call the tap five, which is five random questions um, that I'd like to ask you and, and get your response, and you can answer in one word or one sentence, whatever. Uh, you need to, but uh, we'll get started. So my first question is, what is the worst witness training advice that you've ever heard or received? The worst witness training advice. Um, I think <laughs> probably I would, I would, I don't know, that's a good question. I'm trying to think I've gone through and, and I've heard a lot of, a lot of things that I don't agree with. Um, I think pivoting, I think pivoting would be the worst advice that I've ever heard. Um, so explain that, explain pivoting. What I, mean, I think it's the, 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 yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but, um, it's the, 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 you know, I've heard before, well, I'm not an attorney, but da, 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 da. And, and a lot of these types of things where you're trying to dance around the question, um, where essentially you're trying to, uh, in, in essence, go toe to toe with opposing counsel and try to ar out argue them or outsmart them. And, and rather than answer the question, you're trying to pivot it and, and push your narrative rather than just answer the question. And I've, you know, I know that there's, there's, there's some people out there that preach it, but um, uh, it's not, it's not something that, that we do. It's not something that I, I endorse. And I've seen too many bad depositions that I can direct back and, and look back. It's because they're trying to pivot. Hmm. So on the flip side, question number two, what's the best witness training advice that you've ever heard or have been given? I think the best is, is really just being present in the moment for each question, because a lot of times, like I said, is, you know, a lot of witnesses are trying to formulate their response before the questioner is done. Uh, and, and they're not present and they're missing key words that are in questions or, you know, mm -hmm. they're answering, as you said before, answering questions that were not even asked of them. I mean, I can get witnesses to agree to things as dumb as seeing Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny arguing or, or seeing someone juggling apples or seeing someone spinning a subway sign. I mean, I can get them to agree to all those types of things, all because they're not listening fully to the question. They're starting to process the question before it's done. Um, and, and, I, and they feel stupid afterwards when I ask them what Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny are arguing about. Um, but the truth of the matter is, it's because they're not fully listening. So the best advice is, listen all the way to the end, listen to every single word that's coming out of the person's mouth. And then, and only then do you actually deliver your answer. So that would also entail you being alert to the question, right? So, and I'm sure we could talk about fatigue and all kinds of other stuff that you probably need to address leading up to depositions or, um, or, or being questioned by opposing counsel, et cetera. Right. Yeah, like I said, that that meaning making sure there's no distractions. Like I said, not worrying about emails and not worrying about what you're gonna what you're gonna you know do for your grocery list after the deposition yeah. is over. But yeah, it's being present for every right there, hyper hyper aware of, of what's going on in, in front of you versus you know allowing your mind to drift, which is very very difficult and gets to your point about being fatigued. That it's, it t it takes practice and you know you need you need constant breaks because to be able to do that is very cognitively taxing. Yes. All right. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit. 
and ask you, can, we're staying on the advice part of it, but what would you, what advice would you give to your teenage self before you got into your, your career um, and, and the direction you were headed in life? Uh, what would you go back and say to your teenage self to better prepare them? My teenage self is um, have some confidence or ha actually have some pride in your work ethic, right? You know, a lot of times when we're, we're young and I, and, I, and I harp this on my son uh, is, you know, take some pride in your work ethic. Take some pride in what you do. Take some pride in, in the processes that you do um, in, in, you know, have, have a schedule, have a work ethic, get up, go to the gym, have, have, a, have a different things that you're doing each day that you're making sure that you do. But take some pride, take some pride in that, take some pride in the quality of your work and take some pride in, in, in doing things the right way and in doing things, you know, to the best of your ability. And like I said, my 17 year old self would have kind of slacked off and, and, and not been as, you know, prideful as far as doing things the right way or having some sort of confidence and in, in pride in what I'm doing. That That's fantastic, actually. And it, it you know, reminds me of my son because, <clears throat> excuse me, he, he does the, the trash for the house, but he always forgets to put the bag back in. Like, <laughs> yeah. he, takes it, he takes it out, but then everyone else is always putting the bags back in. So I'm going to have to have a talk with him. There you go. <laughs> All right. So the, the next one, and I'm not saying this is the best question of all five because we're only at number four, but in your opinion, who is the greatest professional wrestler of all time? The greatest professional wrestler of all time. And, and I know uh, uh, you, you have probably an opinion on this. Mine though is, you know, like you said, the, the, the easy staple would be Hulk Hogan and all that stuff. But me, I was, I was a huge ultimate warrior fan. Uh, yes, my God. <laughs> I mean, I used to love it. Like, you know, he'd come out and start shaking the ropes and then running around. Um, that, that he, he, he was, he, for me, coming up, uh, growing up, that he, he was, he was the quintessential wrestler, like I said, with the face paint and stuff. And then some of those, some of those long, uh, bouts and stuff, the paint would be just completely wore off and, and all that stuff like that. But yeah, he, for me, that was, that's, it doesn't get any better than him. Do you recall any of his interviews with like, <clears throat> I mean, anybody like his, his interview, like you just couldn't make sense of anything he said. Right. It was, yeah. <laughs> he never even answered the question, you know, uh, imagine him being deposed. Oh, it would, be, be, a, it would be a train wreck. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. And actually the fact checkers hit me, uh, when, when I had your, your associate bill on, uh, because, you know, he mentioned Randy Savage. Uh, for me, it's it's Ultimate Warrior hands down, uh, and and I'd mentioned their career-ending match, and I said WrestleMania six, but it was actually WrestleMania seven, and I got fact checked for that. So, well, hey, you uh, know, so I'll have to clarify with him as well. But <laughs> uh, but yeah, that that was one of my favorite matches with Ultimate Warrior. What was yours? Um, I, I I'm trying to think. It was he had the one with uh, Hulk Hogan, and I can't even think of of what WrestleMania it was. Um, that was six. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Yeah. So that yeah, was, that title was, for title, intercontinental and world champion. Yeah. yeah. That was, and that was one of them where I was talking about, I think where, where he was, you know, so sweaty and stuff when it was all said and done, basically the, the, the makeup and stuff was completely gone, but yeah, talk about two, two of the, the, the premier wrestlers at the time going at it. Oh yeah. That, that was awesome. Good stuff. Okay. So number five, I know you're a dad. So, what is your best bad dad joke? Do you have one? Oh, God. Um, 
honestly, I don't. I don't have a dad bad joke. I'm sorry to to to, to burst your bubble, what? but I I, I I I tend to stay away from dad bad jokes uh, or bad dad jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like to kind of take, like you said, talking about taking pride. I take some pride in the fact that my son, who's 11, um, still likes having me around uh, and, and, <laughs> and doesn't say that I'm an embarrassment to him. So, you know, and even the other day, he actually said, you know, dad, when I get older, I want to be like you, which such so, but I don't know about oh. that. Um, but the point being is uh, I, I try to stay away from those because once I go down that path, I might go down the path where he doesn't want me around anymore. It's like, dad, you're an embarrassment. My friends are over, go to the other room and leave us alone. Um, so I can <laughs> stay away from them. Well, in that case, I, I've, I've got a um, safety one for you that I'll just, I, I'm going to give you All that right. you might be able to use. Uh, and, and I did some research on this and it's actually specifically for your niche. So what do you call a priest who becomes a lawyer? Excuse me. Who becomes a lawyer? What do you call a priest who becomes a lawyer? I have no idea. A father-in-law. That is awesome. Well, Steve, I definitely enjoyed it. It's certainly been a pleasure. Um, if you need anything that I can do, let me know, and, and I'll do the same. I hope you'll come back and visit us again soon. Yeah, no, it was good. I, I, I have, you know, had some had some fun getting a chance to to be on the other side and then uh, be a guest on someone else's podcast. So I appreciate you uh, you bringing me on and, and having this talk, which I think is is highly needed uh, and, and doesn't get addressed enough. And it's something that is definitely very important to the trucking industry. Agreed. Well, thank you, Steve Wood. Thank you, Courtroom Sciences, and to all the GFOPs of the Accelerator Podcast. We will see you next time.